Welcome to the Speakeasy Crime Cafe podcast, where we speak to some of the most amazing people that you'll ever meet. The people that I bring to you have lived through or experienced something most of us never will. I'm your host, Michael Merson. Welcome, and I hope you enjoy the show. CEO at Tessa in Colorado Springs. We are um, an agency that supports individuals impacted by domestic violence, sexual assault, stalking, and human trafficking. I heard a commercial on the radio for Tessa. It was a friend of mine who said, you know what, you need to get a hold of these people on this hotline. I ended up getting placed with Tessa. This is something that myself and my children will never, ever forget. So, Anne, thank you so much for joining me today. I uh, appreciate having you here on the podcast. It's, uh, it's actually really great for us, and it's educational for the people that are listening. So what is TESSA? What do you do? And how and why was TESSA created? TESSA was started in 1977. Um, there was individuals in the local community that noticed that there was an increase in calls to the Colorado Springs Police Department for people who were experiencing domestic violence within the home. And so through an opportunity by the 4th Judicial District in El Pomar, we were able to be started as an information provider at that time, um, really kind of to start to get the conversation going. At that time, domestic violence was considered sort of a taboo topic. People weren't really talking about it. People didn't recognize that it was an issue. And so really being able to bring it forward in 1977 as more of, we're here, we can talk about it, let's start bringing information to the community. Since that time, we have really grown into much more than just an information provider and a full service agency that provides support to those individuals in our community. So Anne, uh, I remember as a child watching the movie The Burning Bed. The movie adaptation was based on a nonfiction book written by Faith McNulty. The story chronicles the life of Francine Hughes, who was a victim of intimate partner violence that started in the 1960s and finally came to the end in 1977 when she killed her husband. From what I remember, Francine Hughes had no one to turn to. She had no protection from the law and very little support from her family. What has changed over the years regarding intimate partner violence? When the book and the movie was released, it wasn't long after that time when Tessa was started in 1977 and the, the, the conversation was starting to get going. So when that was aired on more of a national level, it certainly brought forward um, more people talking about it, more people realizing that this was actually an issue, um, brought it more again into the forefront. I think at that time there weren't as many shelters as there are now. It really started that movement, got the conversation going. People started opening up more shelters across our country. Um, there were a lot of communities in which police during that time were not arresting offenders. And um, it's my understanding that really that movie coming out kind of got that conversation going as to more the recognition of holding offenders accountable for the actions that they were taking. So I think since that movie came out, since, um, since that actual case, we have come leaps and bounds as to how much we talk about intimate partner violence, the resources that are available for individuals across the country, that we have um, national domestic violence hotlines and organizations and things that serve our country as a whole and those within our communities really came after that movie came out and really started to get the conversation going. 
Are the cases of intimate partner violence rising, lowering, or remaining steady? I guess what I'm asking is, with education, available services, and other organizations like TESSA, are we seeing the numbers of people who are victims of IPV going down or up? I would say that we are seeing numbers really going up. And if that is because the cases are actually going up, or if it is, as you said, related to education, that we are starting to educate our communities even more heavily. Here in Colorado Springs specifically, we do a great push in our uh, middle and high schools, educating our youth on domestic violence, healthy relationships, um, consent, boundaries. As we start to talk more and more about those conversations and people hear those things within their workplace, their kids are bringing home that information. They're seeing it more and more on television. Um, they're hearing it from partner organizations. I do think that education piece is allowing more people to come forward. So whether or not it's that the instances are really going up, our people are more willing to seek help when they are in those situations. Um, it's, it's, it's really unknown as to which of those is really happening. I would like to think it is that people are being more educated and are knowing that the resources are there to support them and that they are seeking help. And that's why we're seeing the numbers going up. Here's an interesting question. Has the issue of COVID-19 and quarantine seen an escalation in IPV? We have seen an escalation in intimate partner violence during this time. Um, when we first went into sort of lockdown, if you will, in March, when the when the pandemic first started, we were all kind of in an unknown period at that time. And so in March, our numbers went down. We knew that wasn't a good thing. That meant people weren't reaching out. We knew the acts were still happening, but they weren't reaching out. And that was because we were locked down. We were in isolation. We were at home. People didn't know how to reach out or they weren't safe to be able to do so. Once we kind of settled into what that looked like, our numbers started going up in April and have consistently gone up since that time. We have seen about a 50% increase in the individuals that we've served since March, as well as monthly on our safe line. We usually have about 800 calls and we've been averaging 12 to 1300 calls during this time. Um, isolation again is, has been a huge factor. That's a tactic that offenders often use against their victims. And really when we're being told to stay at home and we can't go anywhere, well, that offender is using that to further that isolation of, of their victim from friends and family, from being in public. And we've seen more um, instances of, of longer drawn out cases of abuse in that isolation, that lockdown at home. So Anne, if I suspect that a friend, family member, or colleague may be possibly a victim of IPV, what are some of the warning signs that I should be looking for? Um, some of the warning signs that you want to look for is controlling behavior. Again, that isolation, maybe um, they're being kept away again from friends and family outside of the pandemic. Um, even within this, they're not being able to make phone calls, they're not texting as often, um, things like that that might indicate that maybe they're being isolated, um, they're being controlled in some way. Um, intimidation, certainly. Um, if they ever indicate that their partner has obviously threatened to harm them, kill them, threatened to even harm themselves. Um, if you hear, see signs of, um, obviously physical signs of, of um, on their body, bruising, things like that, that there's not really an explanation for. Um, stalking, um, if, if you, you know, you might notice that their, their partner follows them often where they're going, always wants to know where they are, 
um, and not in a normal way. <laughs> you know, it's, it might be normal for some of our partners to say, oh, you're going to go to the grocery store. Okay. But okay, you're going to the grocery store. When are you going to be back? How are you getting there? Following you there? Those types of things might just be a little bit off. Um, obviously if, if you start to see that maybe they're going through a worsening violence situation, they shut down a little bit more. Maybe they're not talking about it as often, um, or they're very closed off. Um, those might be some things that you that you would be looking for. Also, if you see signs of um, intense jealousy, possessiveness, things like that. I think it's important to note, too, that um, each of those incidents in their own might not seem serious. But when you combine things together, that's really what you're looking for. It's not all those little individual acts, but you're looking at, at the parts of a whole. And so when when you have a number of those things in one relationship, that's where it becomes more serious. It seems that women tend to be the greatest risk for being a victim of IPV. Are men ever victims? The stereotype of relationship violence um, is very much that it's, it's a man against a woman um, in an out of control sort of fit of rage, but, but we do see it go both ways for sure. Um, oftentimes women have reactionary violence also to reacting to their offender and feeling threatened. They will then, um, in self-defense, um, react back out towards that violence. Um, and I can give you some stats on intimate partner violence is very widespread. One in four women, one in nine men were victims of sexual violence, physical violence, and or stalking by an intimate partner. Um, we see that year after year. One in three women and nearly one in six men were victims of contact sexual violence at some point in their lives. So it isn't just a women's issue. Um, men are certainly victims as well. Are we still seeing that intimate partner violence is a type of situation where it's not being reported as much because it's inside the home and out of view of other people? I think we certainly do see that again. I think that's where education is key and also where um, relationships with other people is really key too for if you, ha if you know someone that's in that situation for really giving them the resources to reach out as well. Um, I do think people are often ashamed and, and, it, and it does happen within the home. It might not be something obviously that's happening out in public and so um, it isn't as well known. But I do think as we increase education and outreach that hopefully that is, again, why we are seeing those numbers of reporting go up. What services does TESA provide? So like I said, when we started in 1977, we were really just an information provider, just trying to get the word out into the community. Since then, we have grown into the multifaceted agency that we are now. Um, we have an advocacy program where individuals can reach out to our advocates by walk-in um, or over the phone, and now also on our website at tessacs.org and chat with an advocate at any time. Um, those advocates can help provide any number of resources that you need. Talk about what the situation is that's going on. What are the resources we can provide? Safety planning. And then they can help get you into other programs within TESA. Those programs would be, we have a counseling program that provides individual and group counseling therapy for um, both adults and children that have been impacted. We have a housing program that helps to provide rental assistance and utilities assistance for transitional housing for individuals that are trying to get into a safer home. 
We have a legal program that helps to work with individuals to obtain temporary and permanent protection orders and also help with matters of family law. We have a youth and children's program that works with children that are currently experiencing violence within the home um, or kiddos that are living in our safe house. We also have our youth and children's program that does that outreach into our schools. We have a number of school districts in Colorado Springs that have engaged us to do that healthy relationship curriculum with them to try to stop that cycle of violence before it starts. Um, in addition, we have a human trafficking program now that works with um, individuals that are experiencing both sex and labor trafficking. That's a new program that we just received a federal grant for in January of last year and um, is really a strong program working with a lot of our community partners to support those victims as well. Um, we have a safe house that is a 34-bed safe house at a confidential location where people can call in if they're in immediate need of safe housing, if they're in a highly lethal situation where um, death is potentially imminent at the hands of their offender, we can get adults and children into our safe house um, for a period of time to be able to provide them with that extra safety net. We have a 24-hour safe line that's reachable at any time at 719-633-3819. And on the other end of that line are advocates that can help you reach that safety that you need. Fantastic. What about for people who are deaf, blind, or have a disability that could prevent them from walking in the door here to get help? We have the ability to serve anyone. Um, we have the resources to be able to assist with any client that comes in with any need. If we don't have it on site, we work with our partner organizations to be able to help to provide that support. What can TESA do for uh, victims with children? We welcome children into our program. We love being able to help our children. Um, and again, like I said, our youth and children's program works very closely with the kiddos that are impacted. We do um, those counseling groups. Our youth and children's case managers and advocates work closely one-on-one -on -one with kiddos. We do activity nights, homework club. Um, we do field trips. We do back-to-school barbecues. We do a lot of things to keep the kids engaged and to allow them to have as normal as, as an existence as they can during this tough time in their life. So I would say really that's a very strong program for us is to be able to have that support for those kiddos so that we're giving them some sense of normalcy during this time. Fantastic. I think that's a... I think that's very important. A lot of people only think about uh, the couples involved in relationship, and then uh, many times there's children, mm -hmm. and we, we have to do something for them. Right, we do. What impact does intimate partner violence have on children? There is something called ACEs, which is adverse childhood experiences, and those are potentially traumatic events that occur during a child's lifetime, anytime from zero to 17 years old, those can be um, experiencing violence, abuse, or neglect against themselves, witnessing violence in the home or community, having a member uh, of their family die um, unexpectedly, uh, traumatically, or by suicide. So we look at those ACEs as really almost factors that can um, indicate future problems that a child might have because they've experienced these traumatic events. Those factors can lead to chronic health problems, depression, mental illness, 
Um, children that grow up with that toxic stress, they have difficulty forming healthy and stable relationships themselves. Um, and so again, our programming that we can work with these youth is really trying to overcome those situations for them so that they can grow up to be healthy adults, they can have healthy relationships, even if that's not what's been modeled for them, that, that they can stop that cycle and they can grow on to be healthy adults and be able to have healthy families of their own. Because when they see that, if they don't get the support needed to be able to stop that process, it can just continue. And then that would translate into their lives as adults and maybe then onto their children. And we just see that cycle continuing. Um, that's a huge goal again of our work within our schools is being able to reach out to those kids that maybe aren't in our programming. Maybe their families haven't sought help. Maybe these things are happening in their house, but they haven't come for the help that they need. Well, in a way, we're being able to still serve those kids by being in a school, modeling that behavior for them, giving them those, those pieces of education that they need to start making the right choices and to be able to grow up as healthier adults. That's interesting you mentioned that because that's part of what I was looking into when I was getting ready for this was a CDC and Kaiser Permanente study of ACEs mm -hmm. between 1995 and 1997. Right. Yeah. Our youth and children's department uses that very heavily to look at. We do a lot of trainings on ACEs. Wow. So. I think it's a good idea. It is. Definitely. <laughs> is IPV strictly associated with heterosexual couples? It is not limited to heterosexual relationships. Um, it affects individuals of all sexual orientations and genders. And really within the LGBTQ plus community, intimate partner violence occurs at an equal rate or even higher rate than what we see in a heterosexual community. Um, those individuals might experience unique forms of intimate partner violence. They also sometimes experience distinctive barriers to receiving the support um, that they need. Um, really be more from a place of fear of discrimination or bias. But we certainly here at TESA serve anyone, anyone that's experiencing intimate partner violence um, and, and have programs that are fit to everyone's individual needs. That's, uh, you guys do a lot. We do do a lot. <laughs> well, we need it though. I mean, we do. every community needs yeah. it. And our services are growing year after year. You know, it's just um, the landscape changes, new things come about, new ways of doing things come about, new programs, new funding opportunities. And so we're always taking advantage of those opportunities as well so that we continue to answer to the needs of our community and grow in the way that our community needs us to grow for support. Now, when I was a police officer, I responded to a call for service involving domestic violence. I remember hearing the victim say that he controlled the money, he has the car, and that she had no money to start over. Uh, she said, I don't even have a credit card. I mean, some victims feel they do not have the resources to escape. Are there resources for them besides there, what we already covered? There absolutely are resources. And really, it's, it is within what we covered. Um, and so, again, when someone comes to us and reaches out for support or even comes to one of our partner organizations in the community, we deal specifically with domestic violence, sexual assault, stalking, and human trafficking. Like we've said, we are the only provider in all of El Paso and Teller County that provides confidential victims advocacy. We're protected by a state statute. So if someone comes to us, we, other, other than in instances of child abuse or elder neglect, we do not report out um, the violence that's happening. And so um, there are resources across our community for people that might be in need of finding housing, 
finding financial support, finding food, all of those things. If you come to Tessa, we can help you find those. Or if it's not something we directly provide, we connect you with our community partners to be able to give you everything that you need to be able to get back on your feet. Um, our program is very empowerment based. And so it's really allowing those individuals that are seeking support to really chart their own course. Because when you're in a when you're in a relationship where you're being controlled, you're not being able to make any of your own decisions. So for someone to come to us and us say, now you must do this, 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 and this, well, that's still controlling them and not allowing them to make their own choices. And so we give them the resources that are out there, and then it's really empowering them to make those choices of what the next steps are that they want to take and, and where they want to reach out further for that support so that they're able to start charting their own course. Can you take us through a scenario of IPV using Dr. Lenore Walker's theory of the cycle of violence? So the cycle of violence has three stages. It's the tension phase, the actual violence or explosion phase, and then the remorseful or honeymoon phase. Um, in the tension phase, that's where the offender is tense, frustrated, um, potentially feeling jealous. That's when they become potentially verbally abusive, have fits of anger, um, might be silent, might be controlling, showing possessiveness. During that time, the survivor is feeling angry, possibly unfairly treated, hopeless, tense also, embarrassed, not totally sure what's going on. Um, after that tension phase builds, and that can build for any amount of time, um, after the tension phase builds, it might then go into phase two, which is the explosive or more violent phase. Um, that's really when the offender is feeling anger, enraged, um, that, that their feelings are right. This is, they're, they're jealous, they're frustrated. Um, this might be the point where they would become dangerously violent, um, have the desire to hurt, potentially kill. They're more out of control, more irrational. Obviously, during this time, then the survivor is frightened, trapped, helpless, um, might even completely shut down and feel numb. And that event, if it, unfortunately, if it, if it does not end in a lethal event, which obviously we hope that it doesn't, if it does not end in a lethal event, well, then after that happens, the offender starts feeling remorseful and they're apologetic they kind of forget really how it went They're They don't really understand why you're still angry about it. Oh, but I still love you. I didn't mean to do that. Um, that was a one-time thing. I'll never do it again. So the victim in that situation, okay, might start feeling relieved. Okay, you're right. That was a one-time thing. I know you love me. I'm sorry that I, maybe I did something to provoke that. I'm sorry. What did I do? Why did you do that? Was it my fault? So they might feel guilt. Um, denial really in the whole incident having happened so then we can kind of go in that remorseful honeymoon stage for a while but then we might get back into that tension stage and every time we go back into that the level of violence tends to increase um, what we have seen during covid specifically in relation to the cycle of violence is that remorse or honeymoon phase we often kind of can also call the cool down phase well, when we're in isolation and we're at home and we don't have the ability for somebody to leave the house or walk away or actually cool down, 
that phase is sort of being skipped. And so the violence is really on fast forward. Um, it's happening more quickly because they don't, they're not really having that cool down, walk away, remorseful phase. It's going tension to violence, tension to violence, tension to violence without that cool down piece happening. But in, in a normal, quote, normal um, year when we're not seeing the effects of what the pandemic has done to, we do see more of that tension to violence to remorse and that cycle continuing. But, but again, this year we have seen a lot less of that remorse piece happening. Interesting. Mm -hmm. What is the bottom line regarding IPV, domestic violence, or relationship violence? I think the bottom line is that it happens everywhere. Um, I think. So it doesn't matter if uh, culture, mm -mm. financial standing, mm -mm. any of that. It knows no bounds. And I think so many communities feel like, as with other things, oh, it doesn't happen here. Not people I know, not my neighbors. And it's, it knows no bounds. Um, again, we see that often in, in some of our schools. Well, our kids don't need this education. This doesn't happen in our neck of the woods. Um, but it, it knows no bounds. It knows no, like you said, no financial, no racial, no gender, no age bounds. It, it can happen anywhere to anyone. And it's very likely that you know someone that on some degree is experiencing some level of abuse, whether that be emotional, financial, actual physical abuse. Um, you might know somebody. And again, um, people can be ashamed, very embarrassed, and you're not seeing that. But it, it does happen everywhere. I think it's really important, too, for people to know that there are resources to help. You don't have to hide in fear. You don't have to stand alone. There are organizations and people to support you. What's the best advice that you could give someone who's a victim of IPV right now when they hear this podcast? If you are in a situation to reach out for help. Um, I know it doesn't always feel safe. And oftentimes um, it's said that leaving is when it becomes most dangerous in a relationship, and that is true. And again, that is why we are here to help you safety plan. It might not be the right time to leave. Um, so we we can help you safety plan to, for when that time is right. But if you are experiencing or you know someone that's experiencing um, violence in a relationship um, to reach out for help, call our safe line, 719-633-3819. You can also log on to our website at tessacs.org and we have a confidential chat where you can chat with advocates. So if it's not safe to pick up the phone and talk, you can chat by texting on your phone and there's a, a quick way to escape from that as well so that someone wouldn't know that that's what you had been doing. Um, I just, I can't stress enough to, to reach out and get the help because help is here. What about people that are in other states? Are there other organizations such as TESSA uh, that they could reach out as well? There are organizations in other states. There are other organizations um, in other cities across Colorado. So you, we do have people oftentimes reach out to us from other states. They're looking to relocate here. They're in a bad situation in another state. They need help. Um, so we work with those organizations in other states. We work with those organizations across the state of Colorado. Um, we're all in this together. We're, we're, helping to, we're helping to combat the same issue. And so we are very much a, a network of providers 
in support of of our individuals and our clients that we work with. And so if that means being able to help you relocate from another state, relocate out of Colorado Springs to another state, find support in another city, whatever is going to help you find safety and empower you to be able to get back on your feet and and start living your life, um, we're here to be able to support that. The word empowering Mm -hmm. is just empowering itself, isn't it? It is empowering just in and of itself. I think just even hearing the word makes me feel stronger. It does. Um, But being able to, I think that's such a joy that our advocates have too, is when we're able to have somebody come into our services and, and imagine coming in with nothing. You don't, I mean, you have maybe fled a situation with really the clothes on your back and that's all that you have. And to watch that person to be able to slowly grow and and start to find who they themselves are. Um, there's really no greater joy for our advocates than to be able to have that moment of knowing that we've supported that person in that process of empowerment and, and becoming their own and finding them safety and, and really the ability to be self-sufficient and live a better life. It is. It's, you guys do a great job. I mean, I've worked with you in the past when I was a police officer. You've been here that long. Um, from when I first started in 1998, we've used you guys uh, when we've had situations where we've had to get someone out of a home mm-hmm. because it was a, a extremely violent place. Mm-hmm. And uh, we don't even know, as police officers, we don't even know where the, uh, where the people are going. You take them and you protect them. I think it's fantastic. It is. And, and we do work so strongly with the police department and with El Paso County Sheriff's and and again, we're all in this together. And our, our end goal is to find that safety and that support for those individuals. And um, we're, we're really all stronger together by being able to have that community that works together. So Anne, if someone wants to be a volunteer or a community partner with TESA, what should they do? Uh, you can reach out on our website. There's contact information to be able to do that. We are always accepting volunteers. During COVID, it's been a little bit weird. It's been a little bit non-traditional in how we've been using our volunteers, but we are always accepting volunteers. If you have the desire to have a greater impact in actually working with um, our clients, you can be a volunteer that does that. You can go through our confidential victims advocate training, and we love our volunteers that do that and are able to have a greater impact with our clients. Um, Obviously, as any nonprofit is, we're always looking for partners to be able to provide monetary support because we couldn't do the work that we do if it wasn't for the generosity of our community that continues to support us. And even in a time like we've seen this past year where so many of us have been living in unknowns, um, we have been so fortunate to have received so much generosity from our community in the form of, of monetary support. Um, but again, we couldn't continue to offer the services that we do if it wasn't for those dollars coming in as well. Tessa will give you hope. They will give you options. They will give you a way out. I um, live in a safe and happy home that I have the ability to make decisions for myself. I can drive my car wherever I want, whenever I want. I can talk to my sisters on the phone. Um, I can talk to my friends on the phone. I can come to work without being harassed. I can be affectionate with my children. I can be affectionate with my partner. If I just want to walk up and give them a big old smooch, it's okay. It's just a new life for us. Mm-hmm. And I'm so happy. I'm so happy. My life is happy and my life is safe.